0: You guys can have a seat. we you doing that? If you're a note taker or if you just kind of want a main idea for today, here it is. Maybe. There we go. Parable of a vineyard. All right, God has planted people in this world like a vineyard. The natural outcome should be healthy growth, but sometimes God's people are like rotten fruit. Good. I'm glad you laughed more than... Okay, good. Because I edited that like 10 times and took that out. But sometimes we're like rotten fruit, right? Right, you ever buy a whole thing of fruit for, for that? I have that drawer in my refrigerator that's all my fruit and it keeps it at whatever temperature it's supposed to do and all those things that I really don't understand what it does, but it does. And you get to the back of it and sometimes you load from the front if you're dumb like I do. Sometimes you just keep putting stuff in and you get to that one thing in the back that's green and it's not a lime, right? <laughs> It's just wrong. It's a little fuzzy, and it's not a peach, right? Like, it's, it's just all the wrong things, and there's nothing you want to do with this, right? So here's this parable. God is speaking almost three millennia ago to his people. Now, he speaks to a people group, and, and he speaks to Judah or Jerusalem, the capital, and he speaks to Israel, and, and he, he speaks to them, and he speaks to them often as nations, and so sometimes there's, there's two ways the Western American church tends to react to that. We tend to replace Israel or Judah with America thinking that this is a theocracy built on Jesus, which it isn't, okay? Or we tend to think that these words were for Judah and Israel alone, this nation group, this ethnicity that really, for the most part, doesn't exist anymore in that form, okay? Very different what that is today. Also not true. Here's what God did. God called, and as Joey just kind of made that joke earlier, Abram Abram at that time, Abraham eventually, he calls him to leave his home and to go and follow God, right? As God calls Abram out, Abram is childless, God promises to make a nation out of him. So Abram goes out, follows God, is obedient, goes as far as he can go wherever God calls him, kind of like Michigan, we'll just kind of equate that. We'll leave Joey's metaphor all in place, all right? But what happens is Abraham begins to have a child who then has children, who then have many children, and and what happens is a nation is birthed. But it was never about a geography. It was really never about a name. In fact, Israel just means governed by God. So it was never about that. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God, through his people, say, go out and share this message, this message of faith, this gospel, this good news. Go share it with the nations around you. And so we confuse that as if this people group is the only intended hearer. Sometimes we treat America like that. And sometimes we treat America like this story is not relevant to us. And so let me just say this. Our history is our history. It has strengths and weaknesses to it. We can deal with that some other time. But the history here that we have is a people group trying to find religious freedom, right? The freedom to worship God. Many of them were Christians. Some of them were theists and dualists. There was some, some, that some of our nation's fathers aren't all Christians, but many of them were, and they were pursuing a place where really, fast forward to so now, we could be one nation under God, right? Yeah. So here we are, broken as we are, flawed as we are imperfect as we are, still a nation that has its roots in trying to pursue Jesus, really. And if you just kind of shrink that down to this room, you also get a group of people gathered together around the attempt to pursue Jesus, right? And so in a sense, we're like a little vineyard planted here in Cerritos, right? And and this nation has been that thing that God used and God blessed for a season and and planted here on this continent. And so as we read these words, we have to hear them 2,700 and something years ago when they were written to the people group they were written to. We have to understand that and realize that there was a real intended hearer, but that God captured this and wrote this down that we might read it and hear it again. So that we would take this and that we would kind of measure ourselves, judge ourselves, discern ourselves within the same framework. So you can dispute our history, or our heritage. You can, you, can, you can critique the flaws that have been a part of the centuries we've been around. Or you can just understand that sometimes people that have good intentions to follow God don't always do it really well. Is that fair? And so here we sit a group of people with probably really good intentions to follow God who fail left and right. And so the vineyard is this parable, and God says this in verse 1. He says, well, this is Isaiah, so let me, let me back out of that. This is Isaiah. He says, let me sing a song, or let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning this vineyard. Isaiah is going to speak in the way, kind of like Jesus does. He's going to share a parable. And a parable is an image, and it's just really from, from uh, a couple of Greek words, just means to come alongside, an image that comes alongside, right? So a parable is an image that comes alongside their real life that they can understand. So 2,700 and something years ago, when this is written between 2,700 and 2,800 years ago, when this story is first being captured and told to the people of God, understand that they're in an agrarian setting. That means the vast majority of the people that heard this in their day either raised animals or grew crops for a living or both. So this hit right where they live. So today, less of us do that and and some for a hobby, but less of us do that for a living. We're not a lot of farmers in the room. Not a lot of us raise cattle for a living. And so obviously the stories would change. If Jesus were to speak to us today, the parable might be different. But in this setting... This hits right where they live. And he says, so here, let me, let me do this. And so his parable is going to be kind of framed in a song. Let me sing a love song for the one who has planted the vineyard. So verse 1, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And he dug it, and he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. So here's the parable. The parable is about a vineyard. And clearly, the person planting the vineyard is God, right? That's that part from the outset, it's really clear. And so he plants it on a fertile hill. He does all the work to treat the land, to take the rocks and the. Uh, in my day, again, now I've never grown anything. And much what you may think about my past, it wasn't that. So just for the record, all right? <laughs> So I've never done this, this doesn't resonate with me, but even me, in my very ignorant understanding of, of growing anything, I get that you have to cultivate the land that you're in, right? If I were to go out in my backyard or my front yard and try and grow something, the first thing I'd have to do is get out the, the rocks and the weeds and whatever else might be there and then, and then cultivate that land. And what it's saying, this parable says, listen, God took very fertile land, so there's potential, Right? The potential is the fertility in the land. And then God did all the hard work of removing the things that would prohibit his vineyard from growing. And then in the midst of it, he plants a wine vat, right? He plants a place where the outcome is he desires that this this vineyard would produce wine, right? Wine all throughout Scripture is is not just a staple drink, although that was often true, and it's not just something that people would use to get drunk with, though that's often true also. But it was something that is, is really recognized as being a part of celebrations and feasts. I mean, we use crackers and, and juice here for communion, but communion was begun with a glass of wine and a loaf of bread, right? An unleavened bread, but, but bread. And so it has this this connotation to it that there's this desire, and the desire would be celebratory. That the desire would be not just a meal, but a high meal, a very victorious, celebratory, commensatory kind of a meal, right? That would be much grander than just having lunch. And so that's his desired outcome. This vineyard is not just to yield fruit, but to yield such good grapes that he could cultivate that into wine, this thing, that is symbolic of festivity and joy and the high points in in even liturgical calendars and things like that. So he says, so here's what we've done. We've hewed out a wine vat and, and we've looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes and just... We use the term more today, sour grapes. We use that maybe about somebody who isn't happy about something or something else. But the idea is that these grapes that it turns out are not useful for anything. And so in this context, you can't just eat them. You can't turn them into wine, our time. You can't just turn them into jelly or something. They're no good, right? And so here's the parable. God has picked this place and done all the hard work and carved out expectation for the growth that would be produced here and instead of that being the produce instead of that being the production instead of great grapes sour or wild grapes is the outcome verse 3 it says now O inhabitants of jerusalem and men of judah judge between me and my vineyard what more was there to do for my vineyard that i have not done in it when i looked for it to yield grapes why did it yield wild grapes So from the outside, again, from a parable, the the one planting the vineyard says from the outset, now listen, judge between me and my vineyard, right? I want you to look at all that was done. I want to answer the question, now, what more could I have done? Is there anything I did not do for this vineyard to produce what it should have produced? The implied answer is no, there's nothing God has done or has left undone that we need. So if we're going to ask this in the modern day context today, so us, in the context of Christ and the gospel, is there anything necessary for us to succeed in following Jesus that God has not already done? I know, I'm terribly boring, but we'll get back to it, I swear. God just asked this question. Is there anything I haven't done that would cause you to succeed in your faith? Just just consider that for a minute. When you you walk through your life, and, and you know your highs and lows, you know your successes and failures, you know where you are in life. But is there any part of the gospel that's just not sufficient for you? Is there anything necessary for your faith that God has not already provided in Christ? And obviously the answer is no so in this parable isaiah poses this question so judge between me and my vineyard judge between god and, and and humanity not just all of humanity but those are to be who are his judge between us and then tell me why have i only received wild grapes or sour grapes Verse 5, it says, and now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. So the, so the pronouncement is, listen, all that's come out is these wild grapes, something I can't use. Now tell me, judge between me and the grapes. And all of a sudden, and we find that God has done everything necessary. So then he says, okay, because I have done everything necessary, and still the outcome is not what it should be, here's what I'm going to do. Verse 5, and he says, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. And it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed or briars or thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that no rain, that they rain no rain upon it. So here's this warning of judgment. Now Isaiah is going to be filled with this from cover to cover, 66 chapters, that the vast majority of them are going to come with warning of judgment. And then some of it's going to take place, and then there's going to be, listen, you're still not hearing me. Here's a warning of more judgment. And and the overarching narrative is this loving God who is pursuing his people, who has done everything necessary for a successful vineyard, for even, go further than that, for successful amazing wine, if you follow that parable out. God has done everything necessary, but the outcome still continues to be wild grapes sour grapes, unusable fruit. So God is saying, listen, either you return to me and the outcome changes. Return to me and I will bless you. But if not, I'm just going to start lifting my hand off of you. And what's going to happen is the nations around you are going to come in and they're going to slaughter you. And they're going to take you captive. They're going to enslave you. They're going to kill you. And so the image here is, listen, I'm going to remove the hedge. And sometimes if you've been around the church long enough and you've prayed with people that have been around the church quite some time, you might even hear people pray for what they call a hedge of protection. And not language I would often use, I I tend to pray with people who may not know what that means, and so I'm trying to say things a little less image-driven, if you will. But it comes from things like this, like there was a hedge that was built around a vineyard, or there would be a hedge of something that would be built around something to protect it. And so this is the very wall, if you will, of protection around this vineyard. And God is saying, listen, if you, if you don't return, if you don't repent, if you don't come back to me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the hedge down and no more protection. And I'm going to quit pruning. And so in, in our lives, when we hear pruning, hear discipline. I don't mean discipline like punishment, but hear the discipline of God as God corrects us and moves us through life. Right as we have children who want to go their own way and do things, we correct them, we discipline them. That's not always punitive. But it's the way that we, we corral our children into the right way of living and teach them. That's the pruning. So first, I'm going to remove your protection, and then you continue, and I'm going to stop correcting you. I'm going to stop telling you it's wrong. You're going to be left to fend for yourself. And then all the thorns are going to come in and choke you out. And then... If you still don't return to me, I'm going to cause no cloud to cover over you and no rain to drop. And all your provision will be removed. So I want you to hear this. There's often a disconnect between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. People say, well, the God of the New Testament seems really kind and loving. And the God of the Old Testament seems really angry sometimes. Sometimes. And what I would say is there's not a disparity. We see the same story. We see the same calling. There there are these judgments and warnings in the New Testament as well. But in the Old Testament, this is always to people God loves. This is to us. See, my message is here, and this is just me. My, My message is here never about what the world is doing wrong. One, they're not listening but it's about what we're doing wrong. It's where we're falling short. Yes, we can analyze the culture in, but let's be honest, we're we're responsible for the culture we live in. And that's who God is speaking to, the people in the room. You're the vineyard. You're the ones not producing. And so in our context, we're the vineyard. We're the ones that aren't doing it. And and again, if if we want to take that inside the room, outside the room kind of idea, because we're not producing what God has called us to, that's why the culture looks the way it does. If we were the people God had called us to be, the culture around us would look different. Education would look different. Politics would look different. The court systems would look different. The poor would be cared for differently. But it's us. It has to begin with us. Church in America, when we hear of God removing protection, discipline, and provision, do we respond by seeking God in repentance or simply bra- blaming the culture around us. Verse seven: For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed; for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Isaiah, for me, has been, and I, I told you this when I began. I'd never taught through all the way through I'd never taught through Isaiah before. Just a couple selected passages. Going through Isaiah has shown me some things. There are, there are some really common themes in Isaiah, and, they, and there are some incredible parallels between Israel and Judah 27, 2800 years ago and America today. There are some deep, deep parallels. But one of them is this, and one of them may be the most convicting to me. Is the is the, the recurring call of God's people to pursue justice for people that are that are, are unable to pursue justice for themselves, for the poor, for the immigrant, for the for the for the the marginalized, for whatever it is, for the addicted. For I mean, just you fill in the blanks of the whatever person, the single mom, the widow. You, I mean, you fill it in. There's tons of it. But there is a repeated call to pursue justice. And even in this, he's winding up this vineyard parallel. And he says, listen, I'm looking for righteousness. And as a church, we all go, yeah, God's always looking for his people to be righteous. We kind of assume that one. But the other thing he says, is, I'm looking for justice. I'm looking for justice, but behold, bloodshed. I'm looking for righteousness, but all I get is talk. He says, but behold, an outcry. The people of God. The vineyard represents people who have been called by God in all ages throughout history to measure themselves and their faithfulness. We as a church need to heed the same cautions. We need to hear the calls towards justice as much as we hear the calls towards righteousness. We need to hear these calls of returning to God as if we were Israel and Judah. We need to hear that at least at minimum in this room. And the church in America needs to hear this. Verse 8, he says, woe to those. Let me just, woe is not a, the only time we hear the word woe, we hear it in like an exclamatory fashion, right? Like, what's his name? Blossom, Joey, whatever his name is, woe, right? Like, there was a lot of woes in my growing up, okay? There was that. Woe right here is a, that was a blossom reference. That's a first in our 15 years of ministry together. Is that not true? All right. I'm praying it's a last as well, just for the record. We're going to edit that out and. Cover my shame. All right, so a woe is a great distress or a great pain. When he says a woe to you, right, and that's all throughout Old Testament, New Testament, we see this cry of here's a great distress, shame, and pain on you because of what you've done. So here's what he says, verse 8, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. So here's the first woe, and, and it's just simply this, aggressive greed at the cost of the poor. And here's what he's saying, woe to you who join house to house. Now listen, in the end, it's just like one person living in this place. And you add thing to thing, land to land, home to home, until you squeeze everyone out. And it's not against, and I, and I, and I, I wrestled through this again, I just, I spent some time like how, how are we going to say this? Let's just, you know what? I'm just going to put the note on the screen. The sin of greed and injustice. When Christians focus on accumulation of wealth in this life, they tend to lose focus on God. Let me push pause there for a second. You can have wealth and love Jesus, right? You can have money and love Jesus. Remember, Jesus says it's the love of money, right, that causes evil or that that is the, the beginning of evil. But Jesus also said it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. So here's what he's saying. It's hard to be wealthy and love Jesus. Not impossible, but hard. Because in order to do what it takes to pursue more and more wealth, what happens is you must give myopic focus to it. You must devote yourself to the accumulation of these things. And listen, I know... I know some people that have done a lot on very little, and they're some of the most generous and godly people. So again, they're not mutually exclusive. But when Jesus says it's really, really hard, we should just pause and go, okay, why? So when Christians focus on accumulation of wealth in this life, they tend to lose focus on God. However, when those same people allow their greed to hurt the poor and needy, they incur God's wrath. And that is what he's saying. You add house to house to house. I know someone who doesn't make a ton of money and they own several houses because they've been smart. And every time when they rent out a house, they rent it out to people in ministry. Joey lives in that house right now. They, they, they want to bless people with it. I know someone who just got another house and they want, to, they want to rent it out really cheap to students at Biola. Like I know people that do this. That's the opposite of this. So please don't conflate those two things together. You can have a lot and be generous and godly. But the tendency when pursuing a lot is to lose focus. And then when you do that and you lose focus on God, you can tend to oppress others. And that's when God steps up and says, listen, I I oppress those who oppress others. And his call to justice is this, that you must pursue a care for the the weak and the needy. Verse 9 says, the Lord of hosts has sworn by hearing in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, that's a liquid measure, and a homer of seed shall yield, but an ephah, that's a, more of a, a weight measure. Here's what he's saying, because of your injustice, because of your pursuit of this, at the effect of, at the effect of hurting others, I'm just going to take away the things you want. You want lots of houses, I'm gonna take away all your houses. You wanna eat the finest foods, I'm gonna make you hungry. That's what God says. You wanna give your life to this, though, remember the context, this is the people of God. This isn't them, it's us. You wanna do this knowing you should be pursuing me, knowing you should be caring for the poor, for the needy, for the weak. For the marginalized, you want to do this to where your greed is inflicting pain upon them, then I'm just going to inflict the same pain on you, God says. I'm just going to cause you to be without home, cause you to be hungry. Verse 11, woe to those. So here's another woe. Woe to those who rise... I cannot say that word and not hear that. It's terrible. All right. (laughs) Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have a lyre and a harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst." The second woe is the love of sin or sinful excess. This how, in fact, this verse can be a, middle, a little misleading. The woes are tied to the therefores. Okay? If you're a Bible nerd, just pocket that one. That's free. The woe is here's what you're doing. Here's the thing you're causing. Therefore, here's what I'm going to do to you. And here's the thing, it's too easy to read this and see that they get up early in the morning to go out and party and drink too much. It's too easy to see that and miss what he's really talking about. Here's what he's saying, you love drinking more than you love being in communion with God. You love partying with your pagan friends more than you love the fellowship of the community of faith. That's what he's saying. He says... They have Lear and Harp, and the the party says, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or seek the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. So preference of sin over worship. When we enjoy drinking more than worship and partying more than the gathered community of faith, we have lost our way. Finding joy in the broken expressions more than the holy ways God design shows our true distance from God. When you take something that God has given you for your enjoyment, and in this case, we're talking about a vineyard whose ultimate hope by God is gonna produce wine. That's his goal. When you take something God has given you that can be used in the community of faith, that can be used for something holy again, Passover or communion, when you, when you take something like that, when you take the very job God has given you and you use it to a sinful measure, to become greedy, become a workaholic, to use it to lord power over others or whatever. You take the very produce of a grape that was given to be something that could be celebratory and special, and you use it for drunkenness and sin. You take the fact that God gave man and woman, a marriage and something that they are to pursue for a lifetime and the sexuality therein. in and you take that and you pervert it and you use it any other way than God designed it. And God says, listen, when you pursue the sinful excess, when you love the perverted way rather than the holy way I gave you, you've lost your way. When we take anything that God has given us and we use it in ways God has not designed it for, we begin to fall in love with the wrong way rather than the right way. A community of faith should be a place where we find deep joy and celebration. That we should be able to be in this room and love one another so much that we just should look forward to hanging out this morning. That our joy, there's a New Testament passage that says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's that tie to, listen, being on fire for Jesus should bring you more joy than the too many drinks you just had. That's what he's saying. That you should pursue the holy form of communion and joy rather than the other. Verse 14, therefore, the, therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revilers, her revelers, and he who exults in her. Sheol is the grave, it's the common term in the Bible for the grave. It doesn't mean hell, it means death. Here's what it says, when you want to enjoy this life too much, I'll just take this life from you. You want to accumulate wealth, I'll make you broke. You want to celebrate the things of this life that are wrong, I'll just take this life from you. Verse 15, man is humbled, and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall graze the lambs as in their pasture, and the nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. When I opened up this, this book, uh, when I taught Isaiah 1, it was probably one of the most heavy indictments of the people of God, that maybe, in all of Scripture. Isaiah doesn't lighten up a lot, but there are, points, there are parts of it, next week is one of them, where there are just really high moments, worship moments, celebratory moments, but there are, they are interspersed into a book filled with an indictment of the culture of the people of God. And and, and obviously, Isaiah 5 is one of this vineyard that will not produce what God desires is one of them. But in the midst of it, he talks about a holy God, a righteous God, and he says this, Then shall the lambs graze, and their pasture, and nomads shall meet among the ruins of the rich. He reminds us, and I said this at the end of Isaiah 1, that no message in a Christian church should ever end in shame and pain and condemnation that all all our messages, all our time together should end in the hope of Christ. And here's what he says, listen, but God is still righteous, but God is still holy, but God is still in charge. And when God takes over, when he, when he takes away from those who will not listen, when he judges those who are unrighteous, he says, and then he will restore. And the gospel is that, the, the gospel is a God of love, a God who created us and loved us and designed us and made us worshipers of his. Obviously, that story is broken as we, in our sin, as we disobey God and we go our own way, and throughout millennia of history, humanity has sinned its way away from God. But the gospel is this, but God loved us so much that he sent Jesus into this world, that Jesus would come in and live the life we were called to live and die the death that we deserve to die, that God himself would stretch his arms out on a cross and suffer death on our behalf. So that when we submit to God, when we return, when we hear the call of God and we say, okay, God, I've, gone away, I've fallen away. God, I want to return. How do I return? God says, you just come back. Like, I've covered all your sin. I've paid the penalty for you. Jesus stretched out his arms and died that you might be welcomed home. And God says this, you return to me and I begin putting the pieces back together. There's a great... There's a great verse in Joel 2 that really parallels this. A lot of these prophets are, are speaking to the people of God. There's, there's millions of people of God at this point, and a lot of them speaking to the people of God, and they're saying the same things that God is saying. Listen, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to destroy your land. I'm going to take away all your crops. You're gonna, all the things that you celebrate in and forget me for, I'm going to destroy it all. And then Joel 2, he makes this promise. Basically, if they return, he says, listen, if you return, I promise to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. I promise to restore all the pieces that you have lost as I took them away from you so that you would return to me. See, the gospel is a message of hope, a promise of when we return, God is standing there, outstretched arms, welcoming us back. Isaiah says this in verse in chapter one. He says, This, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Every message, no matter how heavy, no matter how hard, no matter how deeply it cuts us, should be heard in the context of God saying, I'm saying this so you'll return. I'm saying this so you'll come home. I'm saying this so you know you are far away, but understand that I want you to be near. Isaiah goes on, verse 18, he says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him, meaning God, be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. The third woe is about mocking God. Is it about standing and calling out God as if God is not God. And maybe it starts as innocent as, well, if, if God is real, let him do this so all know. As if God is a trained monkey who dances when we ask. And it ends in defiantly saying there is no God and an arrogant man standing up and saying there is no God. He says, woe to you who do that. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. All of these woes that Isaiah calls out, all of these things we see in our day right here, right now, they're not disconnected from the life that we live. The parable may be a vineyard and maybe none of us do that, but they're not disconnected from our lives. None hit as close to home as this. Let me read it again to you. It's verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The fourth woe, the fourth sin that he talks about is where we take something that God has defined for us and we redefine it according to our desires. You're a note taker, redefining what God has created. In recent decades, America has redefined things that God defined clearly for thousands of years. What marriage is, what sexuality is, what gender is, and even what life is. How are we not equally guilty to the audience of Isaiah 5? I've watched, even in my ministry years, I've watched as we've redefined marriage and gender, and now the country is in uproar over defining what life is, what sexuality, what purity is. But God has given us what truth is. And you can... You can adhere to the culture and say, well, truth is relative. What might be true for you is not true for me. But even as we say that, we know how stupid that sounds. Right? Like one and one is two. It's not six, no matter what I think. Right? Like truth is truth. And yes, we're learning. We're always going, growing. We're always reassessing our lives by the word of God and asking how we can do better, how we can adhere more, recognizing the sins of generations before us and the sins among us now. You cannot redefine what God has called true. You cannot call darkness light and light darkness. You cannot call truth false and falsehood truth. Verse 21 Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight, clearly human arrogance. Verse 22 Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Clearly, the excess in drinking is brought up again, but there's something tied to it, just as there was in the first one. And really, it's just corruption and morality. It's specific to corruption in the judicial system. There are too many examples right now in the news of a judicial system that is crazy, right? People that don't get indicted that should, people that are indicted that maybe should be. I mean, just the the system's a mess. I just wrote these words down. A corrupt judicial system... Corruption in politics, corruption in media. Right? I don't even think, I don't know how to explain it, right? Like, this is just the world we live in. We have a dishonest media. We have, like, it's not like one side's dishonest, the other's, on, we have dis, dis, dishonest politicians writ large. Maybe there's a good one out there. I just can't figure out who he or she is. A dishonest judicial system. I still think we may have the best judicial system in the world, but it's close to collapsing because of bias and bribery and dishonesty and moral corruption. And I just, I listen to people on the news as they talk and everybody recognizes this and we're not fixing it. We're a nation imploding in the middle of us. And again, I'm not blaming them. I'm blaming us. It starts here. If if anything's going to be fixed, it's going to be fixed here. It's definitely not going to be fixed by a corrupt political system, right? Verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. Maybe that's why that reference is there. There's blossom. All right. (laughs) And their blossom will go up like dust. Sorry. I'm going to regret this message. I know. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. To the people of God, to the people that God says, listen, I've placed you on fertile ground. I've done all the hard work. I did all the labor. I provided for you the gospel that is sufficient for all. I did this. I put a hedge around you. I dug in deep expectations in the center. And then I sat and I waited To that people he says this, they've rejected the law, of the Lord of hosts, and they've despised the Holy One of Israel. I just want that to ever be us. I want us to hear the clear rebukes of God, the strong words of God, that we might take them into our heart and say, listen, we're just far away. We just need to draw near, that we need to return Here's the end of that passage. Here's how he close up this judgment against them. He says, Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as were refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is, st- is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions. They roar, they growl, and they seize their prey, and they carry it off. And none can rescue They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness, distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. This happened 200 years after this. 100 years, 150 years after this. God just lifted his hand completely off. And I just have this image of God stepping back and watching as the nations just came in and devoured. And I don't want that to be our nation, but more importantly, more important than our nation, ever, more important than our nation, is our faith. Our church, not our church, not this little thing. This will go away. Someday this will all be gone. But our faith, the community of faith here in North America, that we would hear this call of God to deeply repent and come back, that we would hear the calls to justice, and mercy, that we would hear the calls to be willing to stand up and say truth is truth and we don't get to redefine it, that we would learn how to speak truth with grace, that we would be able to call people to change in love, and that we would proclaim the name of Jesus no matter what that means, that we would hear the warning and the challenge in Hebrews 6, and I'll close with this, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is why I want to close here. As the author of Hebrews is speaking to Christian, Jewish Christians, he's saying, Listen, we need to get away from the outward forms of what we're doing. We need to dig deep into our hearts. And we need to live this, we need to leave this infantile practice of sin and repentance and forgiveness, and then sin and repentance and forgiveness like a hamster on a wheel going nowhere. That we need to get away from just showing up for church and serving, or showing up and doing this. That we need to get away from the forms that we just walk through once a week or twice a week or whatever we do. And we need to go on to maturing. That we need to draw near. That we need to be a people that is marked differently by our faith. Let's pray. Jesus, you lived a life that you have called us to pursue. You came and you gave everything so that we would give our lives back to you. Not just a small portion of Sunday mornings or a small portion of this or that, but that we would give our lives to you. God, forgive us when we point outside these four walls before looking deep within. Forgive us when we say they're the problem, when really... We're far from you in our hearts. Forgive us when we stand by and we will let justice slip away. Forgive us when we abdicate our role as the church and say, well, the government will be the ones that are just. Let us be the ones that care. Forgive us when we define truth according to what suits us and not according to your word. Forgive us when we allow corruption and accept it as normal. Forgive us when we participate in corruption. God, forgive us when we prefer the broken and dishonorable forms of things you've given us more than we we love the holy ways you've given us to do them. Let us be a people who fall deeply in love with you who pursue justice and mercy and passion and love. Let us pursue repentance, Lord.